Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Our reading this morning is Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and said, Tell the people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I don't know about you, but I did not expect Easter in 2020 to be like this. Easter for me usually involves new dresses for ladies in my life. The guys have to wear a pastel color, I know I'm going to miss this year standing up behind the pulpit and seeing guys dressed like Easter eggs. Easter also involves hunting for eggs and, if we're lucky, maybe a nice meal with some friends or maybe some family members. And usually we have a nice Sunday morning assembly. Family travels in usually to visit other families. Some people are reconnecting with their faith and the assembly is large and exciting. And this year, it's totally different. In fact, I would say that this Easter is different than any other Easter I have ever experienced. But this year I'm finding comfort in something that I wanted to share with you. That even though this Easter is different than any other Easter I have ever experienced, this Easter is actually a lot like the very first Easter that ever happened. You see, Easter, long before it was a holiday that involved eggs or pastel colors, Easter really is just about the resurrection of Jesus. 
the day Jesus raised from the dead, did you know that his disciples were behind closed doors and holed up in their houses? That they were discouraged, alone, and afraid? That they had no clear picture of what the next days or weeks or months were going to be like? They were full of uncertainty. And it's in that moment that the original Easter, the first Easter, interrupted all of that. And I believe that Easter this year can interrupt that same experience for us. Not the idea of the holiday, but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I've brought you this morning to the story of Easter recorded in Matthew chapter 28. The story of the resurrection of Jesus. And in this story, as we trace through this story with the gospel writer Matthew, we're going to see how the resurrection of Jesus changes the lives of his disciples. The story begins in verses 1 through 5, where we learn, first of all, that the resurrection changes who we're looking for. You see, in the beginning of the story, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary are making their way so that they could go see the tomb. What they had intended on doing that morning was going to pay respects to their dead leader. And as they're on their way, the earth quakes and an angel shows up and the stone is rolled away and the angel's sitting on the stone and he says to Mary and the other Mary, I know you've come here looking for a crucified Jesus, but that Jesus is not here. He is risen. He is not dead. So we have to ask, what kind of Jesus are we looking for? A dead and lifeless Jesus who we just have to occasionally stop by his tomb and pay some respects to, but then keep living our lives? No, that Jesus doesn't exist. He is alive. He is on his throne. And he has called us to live for him, in step with him, by faith. So the resurrection has changed who we look for, no longer looking for a dead and lifeless Jesus, but an alive and active Jesus who sits on his throne. The story then moves in verses 6 through 10 to tell us also that the resurrection changes how we experience Jesus. The angel tells Mary and the other Mary that he wants them to return and tell the other disciples that Jesus is alive. In verse 8, it says that they agree to go and they take off. And when they leave, they leave with fear and great joy. A living Jesus at first causes fear because he threatens our autonomy. Yes, this is true. If Jesus is alive and he is Lord, that means that I am not Lord of my life that I don't control everything, that I don't determine the future of all things, that everything is not in my hands, but it's in his hands. And so a living Jesus threatens the autonomy that I want to have in my own life. But a living Jesus also frees my heart. Did you know that we were never designed by God to live as the Lord of our own lives? We were designed and created by God to be disciples, not lords to be followers, not masters. That he is the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And when I understand that he is raised from the dead and he sits on the throne and he is Lord of lords and King of kings, 
and I turn over the sovereign responsibilities of running the world and even running my life, that actually has a freeing impact on how I experience Jesus. I no longer have to carry the burden of worry and anxiety, fear and stress, because I can cast those cares upon him because he cares for us. You see, yes, Jesus does, because he's alive, threaten our autonomy. But when we understand how good and gracious he is, he frees our heart. So the question really becomes, how do we get rid of the fear and have joy? Look again in our text, down in verse 9, and let's see how these two ladies got rid of their fear and kept their joy. He says this, And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Do you notice when they lose their fear? Three things happen. One, it's when they finally meet Jesus resurrected personally. It becomes personal to them. They had saw the empty tomb. They had listened to the angel tell them that Jesus is raised from the dead. But they finally hear in this moment, meet Jesus and hear from him directly. You see, when we meet Jesus and hear from him in his word, when we make it personal for us to come face to face with him, that has impact on the way that we can get rid of our fear. But when they met Jesus, they also, secondly, fell at his feet, meaning they took a posture of submission. They recognized his authority. They bowed down before him. They were not just taking a position with their body. They were submitting their heart, their mind, their spirit to Jesus. A resurrected Jesus that we meet, we must also be willing to submit to. But finally, they worship him. You see, worship is really about declaring what is most worthy in your life. What is the most important thing? What is the thing that you'll dedicate your life to, that you'll give your life to? When we meet Jesus, fall at his feet, declaring that he has authority to rule and reign in this world and in our lives, and begin to worship him as the most valuable thing in the world, all of a sudden we have joy and we lose fear. So the resurrection changes who we're looking for. Not looking for a crucified Jesus, we're looking for a resurrected one. It changes how we relate to Jesus. We start with fear and joy because he threatens our autonomy, but he frees our heart. And we lose that fear when we meet him personally, fall at his feet and submit to his authority, and begin to worship him. And then Matthew moves in verses 11 through 15 in this story to tell us the third thing the resurrection changes. The resurrection makes Christianity unstoppable. You see, in this part of the story, Matthew inserts into this story that the guards who were watching the tomb made it back into the city and went to the chief priests and told them what happened. While they struck a deal, the chief priests gave the guards some money and told them to tell a lie. They said, go around and tell people that the disciples came at night. And when they came at night, they took the body of Jesus away. And they said, if word gets back to your governors, we'll make a deal with them too. Don't worry, just go tell the lie. And they agree to do it and they go do that. And Matthew says, from that point forward, that story began to be told. But you know what? It didn't work. Because a resurrected Jesus makes Christianity unstoppable. 
The major question we have to answer is not whether we like Christianity or not. The question we have to answer is, did Jesus Christ raise from the dead? Christianity stands or falls on that fact and that fact alone. Now we today, in the church mainly, don't really suffer too much from the problem of denying that the resurrection happened. That is a problem that exists in the world and some people don't believe it. But in the church, Christianity has lost its momentum at times and Christianity has lost its power, not just because Christians deny the resurrection, but mainly because Christians get distracted from the resurrection. When things like Easter become just about eggs and pastel colors and dinners, when things like faith become just a practice or a routine, we have what Paul would describe to Timothy, a form of godliness, but we deny its power. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what makes Christianity unstoppable. And you and I as believers in Christ must hold on to the resurrection, must become certain of the resurrection, and we must build our life and base our faith on the resurrection of Jesus Christ alone. So the resurrection changes who we look for, how we relate to Jesus, and the resurrection makes Christianity unstoppable. But this passage finishes with Jesus and his 11. In verses 16 through 20, there's a moment where Jesus spends getting his 11 ready to change the world. And so the resurrection changes how Jesus changes us. It starts off in verse 16 by telling us that it's just the 11 who have gotten together, Jesus and his apostles. And this small group gathered together on Easter and they worship Jesus. And in this passage, in verse 17, Matthew tucks in there a phrase at the end of verse 17. He says, this group gathered together, they worshiped Jesus, but there were some who doubted. Yes, the 11, the apostles who would go out and change the world, who would spread the gospel message, who would give their lives for Jesus, in this moment, they actually experienced doubt. This is one of the moments in the Bible where it's actually important to see what's not said as much as what is said. In the presence of these doubts, Jesus did not say, you don't belong here. How dare you have doubts? Get away from me. Doubts were permitted to exist in the presence of Jesus. And this is important for us because when we're dealing with something as significant as believing that somebody came back from the dead who was God in the flesh, you're gonna have moments that you may wonder about that. And we've got to permit those doubts to exist to deal with them. You see, doubts that are just constantly criticized become a source of major discouragement for people and they give up. And also doubts that are hidden because of criticism and a culture that makes it afraid to bring our doubts up, create people who are hypocritical. You live one thing, but you think a different thing and you just begin to pretend. Let's look how Jesus handles their doubts. Well, first, he provides them a confident reassurance. And he does this by telling them who he is. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, this isn't just some divine power play saying, ha, look at me. I defeated death. Bow down before me. I'm the champion. 
That's not what Jesus is doing. What he's saying when he says, all authority has been given to me, is saying, I have the answers, every answer you are looking for. Every question your heart has, everything you wonder about, keep bringing those questions back to me. I have the answers. Secondly, he calls for them to be involved. So he says, all authority has been given to me. Now I want you to go make disciples. He invites these people who have some faith and some doubts, but willing to love and worship him to be involved in his process. This idea of making disciples, I know, can be intimidating to some people. They feel disqualified or not capable of doing it. But you know, making disciples is actually a pretty simple thing. We can complicate it sometimes, but it's actually very, very simple. The idea of making disciples simply means helping lost people know who Jesus is and helping saved people become like Jesus. That's all it is. Sharing our lives together, teaching and growing together to help lost people see Jesus and help save people become Jesus. Well, how do we do that? Jesus tells us here in verse 19 simply how to do it. He says, teach them to observe everything I've commanded you to do. Teach them to observe. He's very specific in his words. He wants us to be thoughtful how we do this. Jesus didn't say, make them think everything you think right now. He didn't say, convince them to know every single little thing you know right now. That's not how he explained it. He said, invite them, show them, demonstrate to them, teach them to do what you are doing, the things I've commanded you. This becomes really, really important. You see, knowledge and learning are essential in Christianity. This is a knowing religion. You gotta know things and then you respond to what you know. Christianity is built upon what we come to understand. It is not less than learning, but Christianity is most certainly more than just what we know. In a lot of ways, we have grown stagnant and stale in our faith because we've made Christianity just an academic exercise, just about what we know. Have you ever heard of a thing called senioritis? I'm sure you have. It's what people at the end of their school years usually come into when they get tired of school. Well, when I was in college, by the end of my sophomore year, I had senioritis. So at the beginning of my junior year, I made it my way to meet my academic advisor for the first time. And I had one question, what is the quickest way for me to get out of here with a degree? After carving my pathway to get out of college quickly, my mind changed. The rest of my time in college became an academic exercise. And so I did the minimum amount required. I would cram for the tests in the last minute and I would be calculating constantly the points that I had earned to make sure that I would have enough points to pass the test. You see, I had a goal, pass the test just to get the degree. When Christianity becomes just an academic exercise to us, our goal becomes pass the test just so I can get the reward. When I was in college, what I was learning had nothing to do with what, how I was going to live. And so I just made it about what I knew. That happens to us in Christianity. You see, faith in Christ is not just academic. 
Jesus calls us to teach people what we do. And so that means he's inviting us to bring our mixture of love and doubt, of fears and faith, and try him and obey him. Little by little, we learn that he actually is right. And by experience, we learn that his ways are good, that living in obedience to what he has told us to do does build a life of joy and peace, a life of love and gratitude, that we can grow in the fruit of the Spirit and become gentle and kind. We become better people, build better relationships, grow the kind of life that we want to live. It relieves our doubts and proves him to us by obeying. Now notice how brilliant Jesus is. He says, go make disciples by teaching them to do what I've told you to do. So as he invites us into obedience, he calls us to then share how to obey him with other people, thus relieving our doubts and growing us closer to him. Well, finally, Jesus leaves them with one simple word, the most beautiful promise in all the Bible. He says in verse 20, I will be with you always. You notice he doesn't put qualifiers on that. He just says, guys, I'm going to be with you. You mean when I fail? Yeah, I'll be with you. You mean when I disappoint you? Yeah, I'll be there with you. What about when it feels like it's been years since we have been close and I have loved you? I'm still there. But what about when you feel so far away from me? Jesus still says, I'm right here close by. And the question that becomes for a lot of us is, where is he and how do I find him? It reminds me of a passage in Acts chapter 17, where Paul says in verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our very being. Paul says he is not far from us. He's close to us. That the next breath I take, the next time my heart beats, moving my hands or my head, that's how close he is to us. And if he is that close to me, the next question then is, how do I see him? How do I find him? Well, Paul would also tell us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that when we turn to the Lord, the veil that blocks our vision is lifted. Turn to the Lord. That simply means we bring our lives to him. We finally submit. We lay down all of our pride and we come to him and say, I'm here. And he says later in verse 17 that when we turn to the Lord and the veil is lifted, when the veil is lifted, we're then able to behold his glory. That is a key phrase in the Bible. It's the same one John would use in John chapter 1 when he says, we beheld the glory of Jesus, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He doesn't just mean we see him. Beholding him means that we look at him like you would look at a great piece of art and you stare at it until you understand the meaning of the artist. To behold the glory of Jesus means that you look at him, you stare at him, you ponder him, you consider him, and you think about all the meaning that is built inside of who he is and what that means for us. 
And when you look at him and see him and finally understand who he is, what he did for us, and how that changes our life, and that he is now the resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords, I know you'll turn to him and say, I believe in you. I trust you. I confess my sins. I repent. And I want my life to be forever joined with your life. And I'll give my life to you in the waters of baptism. If there is any way that we can help you learn how to become a Christian or to walk closer to Jesus in your Christian life, would you please let us help you?